I'm journalist Carolyn Osorio, and I invite you to join me and my co-host, Brandon Morgan, on our podcast, Criminal Mischief. From law enforcement officers seeking justice to victims' families seeking answers, every week there's a new case and a new victim whose story deserves to be told. New episodes of Criminal Mischief drop every Tuesday. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. This episode, Alien Abduction, the Travis Walton story. Why was there one of my writers in this case? They haven't put their name on the script, so I don't know who it is. <laughs> Maybe we'll be able to identify. I'll put the name on the screen now, and we'll see if I get it right. Or maybe I won't guess, because it'll be embarrassing. <laughs> put your name on the bloody script. <laughs> As this is my first title, the format is I've never read this before. We're going to explore it together, or decode it, one might say. Let's jump in. As this is my first time writing for Decoding the Unknown, I feel it's only fair to you, the viewer, that I lay all my cards on the table from the beginning. I am, if at all possible, even more of a skeptic than Simon. (laughs) Ah, please, there's no one more skeptical than me. Which is why I'm the perfect person to start a channel all about this nonsense about alien abductions and all this baloney. And don't start this out being like, whoever wrote this, oh no, I'm definitely a skeptic, but this is the true story. That's like saying, I'm not a racist, but it's the same, it's not the same thing, but you get my meaning. (laughs) I don't believe in ghosts, and even if I saw one, which is particularly unlikely as I am completely blind, I know who wrote this script. (laughs) There is only one person, there is only one blind person who writes for me. This is Dave. Dave's script. Nailed it. So I'd definitely be more likely to consult a doctor than a medium. I also believe that the latter should all be rounded up and prosecuted for whatever crime includes extorting money from the gullible or emotionally vulnerable. Yes, oh my god. I've spoken about this before. Like, my my mother-in-law falls for this stuff. And the latest one was... Have I told this story before? It was like a few months ago. They've got a dog. The dog's quite old. And the dog has a, a, a lump in its uh, manly parts and they take it to the doctor and it's like yeah he's got a tumor in his balls and they're like we're gonna have to cut that out and so he has a surgery scheduled it's like a month away or whatever because i guess i remember a friend of mine got like testicular cancer and or they found that they he was like oh i found a lump he went to the doctor the next day he went to have surgery and just had it cut out i guess for dogs they're like oh, it's a little bit of a key because <laughs> i'll be like get it out of me now <laughs> get it out I can survive with one testicle. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah. And so the month goes by. This is lovely. I'm finding some food stuck in between my teeth. I just had my lunch. And my mother-in-law goes out and buys cancer music, which is music that you play to your dog. And whoever selling it is like, no, it definitely helps with the cancer. And I'm like, oh, God. Was it expensive? And she's like, yeah, it's really expensive, so it must be good. No! No, that doesn't work like that. You just got scammed. And I'm sure she feels better about it. And then I'm sure, like, now that this time has passed, the dog has had his tumor removed. And she's like, look, the cancer music worked. It's like, no, no, no. The medical intervention worked. I am similarly skeptical when it comes to alien encounters. Call me naive if you wish, but I feel that if an advanced race of super beings were attempting to contact us, they would probably have the intelligence to go directly to one of the world's major governments rather than landing by some poor, unsuspecting sort who nobody is ever going to believe out in the middle of nowhere. All that being said, when I came across the story of Travis Walton, I initially dismissed it out of hand as as just another rambling story from a crazy person. However, when I looked into it in more detail, I began to get the feeling that something strange had definitely happened. Whether or not that strange thing is simply that one man managed to convince a group of his friends and colleagues to engage in an elaborate prank and stick stick with that prank for 46 years in spite of the incredible damage it did to their reputations remains to be seen. Anyway, 
Enough preamble. Put on your tinfoil hat, sit back, and relax while I tell you the peculiar story of the Travis Watson alien abduction. Now, I will say, like, you know, it's like, oh, why would they lie? It just looks bad for them. Because what's that famous quote where it's like, if you can't have fame, infamy will do. And some people are just like, yeah, no, I'm cool just making up a story or doing something bad just so uh, people pay attention to me or I'm remembered by history. Herostratic fame, is that right? Because of the guy, it wasn't Herodotus, that's the historian. It was like Herostratus or something. That would make sense if his name was, if it's Herostratic fame. So Herostratus, he burns down some big old church or some shit like that back in the day. Um, just because he wanted to be remembered by history. Uh, it's like, douchebag. But he now even has a word named after him, so he achieved his goal. And you know who else we remember from that time? Basically nobody. Maybe Pompey. Because I think Pompey was the one who had him put to death or something, which is why I, I, that, that's it. But it's like two people. Maybe some more. I don't know, but most people are just forgotten. Introduction. By all accounts, Travis Walton was a typical lad's lad during his early life, popular with almost everybody, supremely self-confident, and generally fun to be around. According to one man who claimed to have known him fairly well, everybody's got that one friend who is up for anything, a practical joker who is just as happy to be with the recipient of a practical joke purely for the fun of it. For us, that friend was Travis. That's always the cool friend. Whereas they just doesn't give a shit. It's like, hey, you want to go do something fun? He's like, fuck yeah! <laughs> It's okay. I love those people. One example of Travis's near suicidal levels of impulsiveness occurred when he and some friends were driving around their hometown of Snowflake in Arizona. As the story goes, they were just driving around town with no particular destination in mind when they were forced to stop due to the fact that there was a bear in the middle of the road. Before anybody could stop him, Travis had leapt from the car and produced a char- and proceeded to charge the animal while shouting and screaming. Travis is insane. Travis has gone from like, yeah, you want to do something fun? Fuck yeah, to being like, let's chase bears! No, Travis, no! You've gone from being the cool friend to being the friend that puts me in mortal peril every weekend, Travis! Apparently, the bear wanted no part of this crazy madman and immediately fled the scene, leaving Travis unharmed and with an incredible story to tell. It's worth taking note of this story, as when we look back on Travis's main story with a view to deciding on its authenticity, the lengths that he was prepared to go to to have a good story to tell may just aid us in our final verdict. So might be the fact that uh, he's okay i don't know look i believe in aliens i think there are aliens are out there and stuff do i believe that they've abducted travis no <laughs> no guys come on why would they abduct travis Abdu- they'd abduct like whoever was the president at the time or like someone important the incident while carrying out research for this video i've both read and listened to many different accounts some from journalists who reported on the case some from people who claim to have witnessed it firsthand and some from travis himself to the best of my knowledge the following contains the most accurate or at least the most frequently reported by those involved version of the story on wednesday the 5th of november 1975 travis walton and the rest of his logging crew boss mike rogers alan dallas john goulette Dwayne smith kenneth pearson Peterson, sorry, and Steve Pierce. They spent a comparatively normal day felling trees in Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. You can fell trees in the National Forest. Isn't the point of National Forests that they shouldn't be logging? Although I guess there's like, uh, you know, they, they'll they'll fell. Like, I, I don't know, I've got a little house in the forest. And um, there's people that, you know, you just come by and it's, oh, wasn't there a tree there before? And it'd just be a tree stump. And some forestry man has just come down and chopped this tree. And then, oh god, there was one tree that like fell over in a storm and it was like hanging in half right above, we have this deck out back. And I'm like, at some point that's definitely going to fall down while I'm sitting on that deck. And it's a big half of a tree. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. It's really high up. Should I get a little air rifle or something and just gradually like, poof, 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 
until it falls off, at least in a safe way. And then one weekend I come back and it's fallen off and it's smashed like a big corner of my deck off. Oh, brilliant. That's nice. It's going to be very expensive to fix. And it was! Fascinating story, Simon. Thank you. According to Travis, nothing of any particular note happened that day, save from when Alan, a team member who seems to have held a grudge against all of the others at one time or another, attempted to hit him with a falling tree. <laughs> that is kind of intense, dude. That Getting hit by a falling tree. I imagine they're not felling small trees. That sounds like attempted murder, mate. Apart from that, the day proceeded as normal until about 6 o'clock when the crew packed up and left the site in Mike's old pickup truck. As they drove back towards town, Travis and the others became aware of an unusual light shining through the gaps in the trees. Travis claims that he initially believed it to be the light from the setting sun before remembering that the sun had gone down some 30 minutes ago. He's like, oh look, the sun came back up. Wait a minute, that's not how this works! As the truck reached a gap in the trees, Mike slammed on the brakes and the entire crew stared dumbfounded at the most incredible sight any of them had ever seen. The following description comes from TravisWalton.com, which contains a detailed description of the entire event, purportedly written by Travis himself. He's got a website. Oh, by the way, uh, just for clarity, it's Travis-Walton.com if you want to go check that out for some reason. However, having heard him speak in several interviews and having read many of his direct quotes, I believe that it is highly likely that he may have employed the services of a professional writer to assist with this retelling. The style is almost poetic in some places and just does not seem to fit the image and style that has been built up around him over the last 46 years. <laughs> yeah, no, like, no, look, you can obviously be a logger and be brilliant at prose, but there's probably not a huge amount of overlap there. Nevertheless, here it is. I estimated the object to have an overall diameter of 15 or 20 feet. It was 8 or 10 feet thick. The flattened disc had a shape like that of two gigantic pie pans placed lip to lip with a small round bowl turned upside down on top. Barely visible at our angle of sight, the white dome peeked over the upper outline of the ship. We could see darker stripes of a dull silver sheen that divided the glowing areas into panel-like sections. The dim, yellowish light given off by the surface had the luster of hot metal, fresh from a blast furnace. The luster of hot metal, fresh from a blast furnace. It, it feels professional. It feels like someone has written things before. If I tried to write something, it wouldn't be that good. It just wouldn't be that good. As the rest of the crew sat in stunned silence just staring at the craft, Travis says that he was seized by an overwhelming urge to get closer and take a proper look. Seeing as this was the guy who got out of the car to check out a bear, um, I think the overwhelming urge is just your lack of... What's that part of the brain that makes you scared? The amygdala! It's your lack of amygdala. Have you guys seen that show? Not show, it's like a documentary about that Alex Holland guy who climbs the... the... the the Mac background. Is it in Yosemite? He climbs that El Cap. He climbs that giant El Cap thing without any ropes. Like like a madman. And they take it for like some brain scan in the hospital. And they're like, yeah, it turns out your beer center of the brain just isn't really working properly. And they just kind of brush this off. Not like, should we do something about that? Should we tell him that she he should be afraid of death? And it's just kind of like, wait, so his brain is broken and this is why he's not afraid. <laughs> It just feels like this small part of the documentary. And it's like, oh my god. He doesn't he's not afraid of death because his brain doesn't work. I think it was that. There was that. There was something wrong with it. There was like the this you display a remarkably low fear reaction. That's not I don't know. That seems pretty intense. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, other than like, I don't know, someone should be like, Travis, don't go out there. Don't go out and get that bear. Travis, no. Don't climb El Cap without ropes. You don't even know how to climb, Travis! 
To that end, in spite of Mike's half-whispered protestations, Travis opened the passenger door, leapt out, and began to slowly approach the UFO. As he did so, he was struck by just how smooth the disc appeared to be. Be like that smooth part of Travis's brain where his fear center should be. There was no visible antennae or protrusions of any kind. Nothing that resembled a hatch, ports, or window-like structures could be seen. It was at this point that doubts began to surface in his mind as to whether or not what he was doing was wise. Oh, maybe he does not have that smooth amygdala. He was stopping briefly to look back at the rest of the crew in the truck. He decided that if all else failed, he could at least run away. His decision made, he stepped fully into the circle of light cast by the disc and almost immediately began to hear a strange noise as if this incredible machine was somehow powering up. Unfortunately for him, before he could run back to the truck, something happened. That something took the form of a jet of light, described later by the others as a tremendously bright blue-green ray. It shot from the craft, striking Travis in the head and the chest. He was immediately thrown about ten feet backwards before hitting the ground and losing consciousness. Okay, so, so far, it could be... I don't think it's aliens. I think, one, these guys could have made it up for a bit of a laugh. Two, it could be some military craft or something like that. I don't know. I think that's probably a distant second likely for me right now. Disappearance, the search, and police response. Understandably, upon seeing their colleague attacked in this way, the rest of the crew were somewhat rattled. Mike Rogers explained what happened in an interview with Kevin Randall for a different perspective podcast. Travis hit the ground, flat on his back, and did not move. I particularly remember Alan Dallas screaming at me to, you know, get the hell out of there. I waited, you know, about three or four seconds. I just did not feel like, oh, we could leave at the moment, but everybody was yelling at me, and it was very frightening, so I very quickly became panicky. I hit the gas and took off down the road real fast. A quarter of a mile down the road, Mike came to his senses and stopped the truck. Foremost in his mind was the fact that they had abandoned Travis. They had no idea what had happened, no idea if he had been injured, no idea if he was even still alive. Mike got out of the truck and was eventually joined by the remaining crew members. At this point, a somewhat lively discussion began as to what they should do next. Although Mike insisted that they should go back and help Travis, the rest of the crew was less keen on this idea. One of the crew members, Mike, believes that it was Alan who suggested that they should locate a nearby hunting party that they had become aware of during the day, and at least they would then have some guns amongst them. Myself, I'm not entirely sure why they believed this would be helpful. Although Mike stated categorically that nobody in his group was armed, he seems to have failed to take into account the plethora of heavy-duty chain petrol chainsaws that they were all packing. Um, yeah, also using a chainsaw. <laughs> it's like, guns are much more effective. You can use them from a distance. You don't want to, like... Dave, Doom isn't, like, real fighting. Like, I don't think people want to, like, go to battle with chainsaws. They want to use guns. I think this is quite reasonable, to be honest. Aside from this, if the story is to be believed, the craft, whatever it was, had already proven to have far more advanced weapons technology than anything available anywhere on Earth. Yeah, but guns are still a good start. I don't know, I'll be like, would you rather be arm armed or unarmed or chainsaw? I'll be like, well, armed, then chainsaw, then unarmed. Uh, it just makes it, why not why not a couple of extra shotguns is unlikely to have made any difference nevertheless this idea was briefly accepted and they set off in search of the hunters according to mike after they had traveled no more than about half a mile he decided that the idea was ridiculous turned the truck around and slowly headed back in the direction of the site of the incident mike is not entirely sure as to how long they'd been gone but he says that it can have been no more than 15 minutes the first things that they noticed upon arriving back at the clearing was the distinct absence of both flying saucer and a Travis. After conducting as thorough a search as possible, given the fact that they had only one flashlight between them, Mike admitted somewhat defensively that he actually broke down and cried. He told Randall that, quote, A lot of people since then, when they hear this, assume that I was crying because I was scared. It was not that. 
It was more relief that we did not find him. When we pulled up in that clearing, I was expecting to find a charred body. We did not find that, and so it was a big relief to me. The relief of not finding Travis dead was short-lived. The crew's concerns then turned almost immediately to exactly what they should do next. Although it was clear to all of them that they would have to alert the authorities, they suspected, rightly as it turned out, that the police might be slightly skeptical if they told them their friend had been abducted by a UFO. Just tell them what happened. Don't tell them that he was abducted by a UFO. Just describe everything in detail and uh, hopefully they'll take you seriously. Don't be like, the aliens got him. Describe it. Be like, maybe it was a military craft. I don't know, but obviously something weird happened. In the end, it was Kenneth Peterson who drew the short straw and ended up making the initial phone call to the police. Although he was unable to discover exactly what he said, it must have been fairly compelling, as according to Mike, they were joined by a deputy in less than 10 minutes. At this point, the crew tried to explain to members of the constabulary exactly what had happened. Mike recalls that initially they were particularly reluctant to actually use the word flying saucer or UFO, but as soon as one of them did, the attitude of the first responders immediately changed. It became clear to each and every member of the crew that the police were of the opinion that one of them had done something to Travis and that they had concocted this ridiculous story in order to cover their own asses. That was exactly what Mike had initially feared. Yeah, fair. Just descri- I would have just not mentioned UFO and flying saucer and just be like it was a weird ship or like a craft, an aircraft of some kind. And also, if you're inventing a story to cover up a potential murder or whatever or disappearing someone, like you'd come up with something more believable, but it'd be like it was aliens. It'd be like, no, I fell off a cliff and we couldn't get his body. And now it's down at the bottom of the cliff, all mangled. So mangled that you wouldn't be able to see that we whacked him on the head beforehand and that's how he died. Like, that's the story you'd tell, obviously, without the... The, the, the admission on the end, right? You wouldn't be like, it was aliens. That's just stupid. Fortunately for the men, there was just one problem. The police had absolutely no evidence to back up their suspicions. An exceptionally thorough search of the area in which the police were aided by Mike and the guys would not only end with a complete lack of Travis, but also a complete lack of any evidence that could point towards foul play. Wow, police. Are you not seeing the problem there? Uh, an exceptionally thorough search in which the police were aided by Mike and the guys. Um, let, let's say, police, that Mike and the guys did murder Travis. And then you're like, hey, guys, will you help us search for evidence? <laughs> guys, guys, I found a bloody bludgeon. I found a, bl- a blunt object which is covered in blood. Uh, guys, police, over here. No, you'd just be like, just put a bit of bracken over that shit. <laughs> No one will know it was there. Mike was approached by the sheriff's office during the fourth day of searching and told that he and the rest of the crew were required to take a polygraph test. Oh my god, polygraph test. Can we stop it? There was there's a study, they're like 51% accurate, which is barely above uh, a guess. Barely. Now, in many places outside of the United States, the polygraph test is treated with the scornful skepticism that it deserves. It has no place within the judicial system and has been relegated to low-budget, trashy television shows such as the former Jeremy Kyle show. Oh, that show is so trash. We had a TV in the day room at school, and it would always be, I don't know why, but it was always like, I guess because we were, you know... 16 17 year olds i would just be sitting around at school if there wasn't a lesson and it would be like what's on tv there were like four channels so it'd be like it's news news uh some old movie or jeremy kyle jeremy kyle always won and it was always crazy and shit i've seen an embarrassing amount of the jeremy kyle show i don't remember any of it but it was on in the backgrounds like while we'd play pool all the time nevertheless the fact that six out of seven of the men questioned passed the test with one presenting results that were inconclusive often forms a large part of the argument presented by those who believe in the story forget it it's unreliable polygraph tests are a joke i don't care for it at all to be fair to those individuals even experts who are rightly skeptical about the technology have stated that it is quite unlikely that six out of seven people would display the same result unlikely 
but not impossible. This left police, who apparently placed a lot of faith in the results of these tests, in somewhat of a predicament. With their intensifying search continuing to turn up a noticeable lack of Travis, either living or dead, and their main theory at least temporarily scuppered, they really had no leads to pursue. On board the ship, Please note, I have put together the following account from both information shared on Travis-Walton.com and various interviews that the man himself has given over the years. The problem with this part of the story is, of course, that there is only one alleged witness. Unless, of course, you're prepared to count the proposed aliens as witnesses, and even if you are, they seem to have very little interest in sharing their version of events, and at the time of writing, have not come forward to provide any interviews or testimony. Yeah, look, they're not witnesses. You're not a witness unless you, uh, you know, you come along and be like, look what I witnessed. I mean, I guess you technically are if you exist but it doesn't matter because you're not Dave just said this. I don't know why I'm repeating it. Come on, let's go. Should this change at any point, I'd be happy to speak with Sir Simon about doing an update on the story. Let's just say it's unlikely. I'm just going to go ahead and say pretty pretty unlikely that that's going to happen, Dave. Sorry. <laughs> Dave uh, Travis Walton Part 2. Whilst carrying out research for this video, I tracked down Travis Walton through social media and sent him a message asking if he'd be interested in speaking with me. Bravo. Although the platform I used to contact him shows that he has read the message, he has so far chosen not to respond. Even after I sweetened the deal by offering some of Simon's money, so <laughs> Oh, I remember this. Dave was like, Can I offer this dude some money? And I was like, Yeah, sure, go on then. <laughs> So we'll have to make do with what was public is publicly available. I also believe it's worth mentioning that Mike Rogers especially has recently gone to some length to repeatedly reiterate that none of the team actually saw anything after Travis was struck by the beam of light. Yeah, also I imagine like Dave probably mentioned that the channel we're doing this for was called Decoding the Unknown and that it's run by a dickhead called Simon who's probably going to be super skeptical of whatever he says. I'm just not, I don't know, I'm just skeptical. I'm just skeptical. All right, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So kill me. So abduct me by aliens and probe my ass. Don't do that. I'm scared of that. Travis claims he was hit by the aforementioned beam of light. Everything went dark for a time. When he eventually came around, he remembers being both confused and in a lot of pain. Upon remembering what has happened, Travis initially believed that he had been taken to hospital by the rest of the team following the attack and that the vaguely humanoid shapes surrounding him were medical professionals. It was not until his vision fully restored that he realized that his butt had been. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Maybe his butt does get probed. <laughs> Why is that such a meme? Why is there some like pa pa uh, point in the past? Maybe we should do a video about that, decoding the unknown. Why do aliens love butts? <laughs> There's a reason, right? There's got to be like some time in the past where that was ha like that was the story. Like you got abducted by aliens and they probed your anus, right? In one interview, Travis describes the individuals surrounding him as nothing like I'd ever seen before. He describes them as basically humanoid, but a lot shorter than your average human, with larger heads, larger eyes, and no hair at all. Even on their beards? Upon realizing that he was not in fact in hospital, Travis began to panic. He tore off various pieces of equipment that covered his body, in spite of attempts by his alleged captors to restrain him. He jumped down from what he believed to be some sort of examination table. As he backed into a corner, the creatures began to approach him, and so he grabbed an unspecified item from a nearby table and began brandishing it wildly in an attempt to keep them back. This appeared to work, and according to Travis, they all raised their hands in a placatory gesture before leaving the room. Alone and terrified, his only thought at that point was that he must find a way to escape from whatever, the, from wherever they had taken him. Leaving the room through the same door as the alleged aliens, he began searching for a way out. 
After what seemed like an eternity, but by his own admission was probably only a couple of minutes, he found himself in a peculiar room that resembled a planetarium, with star clusters and planets mapped out on the wall, ceiling, and floor. After messing around with a few buttons that seemed to reorient the display, he was joined in the room by a space-suited and helmeted figure that he believed at the time to be a human. Understandably, Travis began firing questions at this individual, but he received no response. The suited figure simply took him gently but firmly by the arm and escorted him from the room. Upon exiting the craft, Travis became aware that it was one of several such vehicles contained within what he presumed to be the hangar bay of a much larger spacecraft. Again, he attempted to engage his guide in conversation, and again his questions were met with only silence. After being led down a short corridor, Travis found himself in a similar room to the one in which he first awakened. This room also contained a number of the same aliens that he had previously seen. With the assistance of his guide, these creatures proceeded to lift him onto an examination table before placing what appeared to be an oxygen mask but without the supply hose over his face. Once again, Travis lost consciousness, and when he awoke sometime later, he was lying by the side of the road, watching as the strange saucer-like craft disappeared into the distance. Pretty wild story, Travis. Aftermath Once he regained consciousness for the second time that day, Travis began to run along the road that he had been left by until he found somewhere that he recognized. That somewhere happened to be a gas station, and that gas station had a telephone. He immediately used that telephone to contact his brother, who initially believed that it was a prank call, and it took Travis several minutes to persuade him that yes, he was who he said he was, and that he needed to be collected. At this point, Travis was allegedly laboring under the delusion that he'd only been gone for a few hours. It was not until his brother collected him that he discovered he'd actually been missing for nearly five days. As you can well imagine, many people were interested in speaking with him, including members of the press and, perhaps more importantly, members of the police. Travis elected to spend some time recovering at his brother's house, but once the police became aware of his return, the information leaked to the press and he was inundated with phone calls and visits from reporters. In the end, Travis agreed to give an exclusive interview to the National Enquirer, who in return offered to put him up in a hotel away from it all and foot the bill for not only a lie detector test but a number of other medical tests in an attempt to ascertain exactly what had happened to him. I'm going to guess the lie detector comes back that he's not lying, but the medical tests come back with nothing interesting at all. In order to carry out this lie detector test, the National Enquirer employed the services of Jack McCarthy, supposedly one of the most respected experts in the field at the time. Oh, please, with this lie detector nonsense. The following is McCarthy's account of what happened. I got a call at my home asking me to come to the Sheraton Hotel and not to tell anybody where I was going, period. Naturally, I told my wife, picked up my portable equipment, and left for the hotel. When I completed my examinations, after reading my charts, I rendered the opinion to the reporters from the National Enquirer that the charts were deceptive and that, in my opinion, he was trying to perpetrate a UFO hoax. Okay, that is not the result I expected, and I still still hold like i didn't hold any weight for when they said it was true and i'm not holding any weight for when this guy says it was false i don't rely i don't believe lie detector tests at all i think this is no evidence that he's trying to make a hoax the quote continues while the lid blew off the room i thought his brother Dwayne was going to throw me off the balcony he was raging like a bull saying there was no way that his brother would lie the charts were very clear obviously deceptive. Prior to the examination, the reporters from the National Enquirer asked me if I would have any objections to pictures being taken of my charts, the equipment, and myself following the examination. I said no. No problem. Well, after I rendered my opinion, the pictures were completely forgotten, and they had no more interest in pictures. But what they did do, they went into an adjoining room and drew up a little form for me to sign to the effect that I would not reveal where I had been that day. I would say nothing about the examination, and so forth and so on. The National Enquirer would later pay for a second lie detector test that Travis would pass 
pass. Oh, solid journalism there, National Enquirer. One, using lie detectors at all. And two, when the lie detector doesn't give the result you want, just doing another one that gives the result that you want. National Enquirer, who are you? I've heard of you. Are you reliable? Because this isn't good journalism, is it? The newspaper would go on to award the group the UFO Encounter of the Year Award. This particular award came with approximately $5,000 in prize money in 1970s money. That's a lot more money today. And that is a strong motivation to make up a story about UFOs. The Skeptics. Although many people among the UFO hunting community have accepted the words of Travis Walton as gospel, there are many others who believe the tale to be the tale to be even more fictitious than those contained within the Bible, allegedly. None of these critics were perhaps more outspoken than Philip Klass, the late full-time UFO investigator from PSYCOP, now known as the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. In a book that he wrote that allegedly disproves several alleged alien abduction stories, he raises several interesting facts. Firstly, although the police were able to verify that a phone call had been made from the telephone at the gas station at around the same time Travis claims to have called his brother. None of the fingerprints that were found on the receiver belonged to Travis. Secondly, in a taped interview with reporters conducted during Travis's alleged absence, his brother said that they were both highly interested in UFOs, had seen several themselves, and had recently had a long discussion on exactly what they would do if either, if either of them was ever abducted. The final quote, taken from an article on Skeptoid.com, sums up the whole situation rather nicely. The few bits and pieces of physical testable evidence that Travis's story would have produced if true or never present. To summarize, there is and never has been any proof that anything ever happened. This far, the far more plausible explanation, that of a youthful money-making or attention-getting scheme by a couple of UFO enthusiasts has worked out well. To critically analyze a far-out incredible story like an extraterrestrial abduction, the first request we make is to show us any evidence. And at this first hurdle, the Travis Walton story has failed completely. End quote. Yeah, I'm pretty much of the same opinion as Skeptoid.com here. Um, there's just no evidence for it. And that's and there's some evidence against it, I guess. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of it for me. That's um, same opinion as Skeptoid.com. Thoughts and opinions. As I said at the beginning, I initially believed that this story was just a media attention grab by a crazy person. I don't think it's cra- I don't think Travis is crazy. I just think either he, in my opinion, I think it's just a story that he made up. Um, I don't think that makes him crazy. I just think it makes him like a guy who likes to tell a good story. And that's okay. That's okay. And whilst I do believe that to some degree, there are a few things about this case that interest me. Okay, Dave, go on. Firstly, the remaining four members of the original team, who were either dead nor Travis, have not changed their original story in spite of the huge amounts of skepticism cast their way. At least one of them lost contact with family members who simply refused to believe their version of events. Also, although, <laughs> who's like, yeah, I don't want to talk to you anymore because you made up a story about alien abductions or I think you made it up. That's kind of douchey, family members. Also, although only one of the surviving team members is still on speaking terms with Travis, none of the others have attempted to expose the whole thing as a hoax. Secondly, having listened to many, many, many hours of interviews from most of the people involved, I've reached the following conclusion. Although I have a very hard time believing any of the story, I find it particularly difficult to believe anything that Travis has said. The way he talks, the way he recounts the story, just comes across to me as a rehearsed performance, and although some of this can undoubtedly be explained by the fact that he has recounted the story thousands of times over the last 50 years or so, I do not feel that it explains everything. Conversely, although I find Mike's version of events to be far more human, and although I don't necessarily believe it myself, I have no trouble believing that he believes it. 
Incidentally, whatever the truth might be, all seven men were of agreement that it cannot be found in the movie adaptation of the story, the 1995 film Fire in the Sky. The movie was described by Travis as suffering from the regrettable yet inevitable exaggerations brought on by adapting a story for Hollywood. Yeah, because while Travis's story is a good one to tell your mates down the pub, there's not enough meat on the bones there to, to make a Hollywood movie about it. A stinging rebuke from a man who wishes everybody to believe that he spent five days on board a flying saucer. Yes, indeed. And I, I, my opinion is still the same as Skeptoid.com. This has been an episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you get this as a podcast, make sure, if you are, why not leave me a review? That'd be fantastic. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.